Welcome to the Show Me and Sue podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Abigail Wagner, and Quinn Reiser from Show Me Institute. David, earlier this week, we had an election. There was a primary election in Missouri, other parts of the country. What uh, what were some of the issues, items, maybe some of the uh, things that people weren't paying attention to as much as some of the uh, elected official races, what uh, what went on kind of beneath the surface? Right. Not surprisingly, the the uh, races for U.S. Senate and some other key local races, the, the primary ballots get most of the attention. But there were some interesting ballot issues on as well. In, in St. Louis County, there were three uh, propositions, uh, char- charter reform and similar, similar efforts to uh, strengthen whistleblower protections for county employees, to create, to create a county salary commission for determining the salaries of the elected officials, and perhaps most importantly, to clarify that boards and commission members need to be confirmed by the county council, which is already the law, but it was being ignored, oddly enough, so they had to strengthen the wording. And all three charter amendments passed by wide margins. So all three of those passed, and some of the other uh, interesting tax issues we were seeing around the state in the Hickman Mills School District in Jackson County, one of the state's larger school districts. They had just an enormous property tax increase proposed, but it passed with 62% of the vote. So obviously the majority of the people in that school district like wanted to invest tax dollars in their schools. Um, we'll see if it works out in the long run or not. Uh, in Holly Hills in South St. Louis, there was a special business district being proposed to tax the residents and businesses of the area to do things that city government should already be doing, uh, park cleanup, street maintenance, and, and additional security services. That, too, passed with also 62% so for that new property tax increase down there. And uh, finally, we always like use taxes in uh, Missouri. Uh, Show me Institute, we've written much about use taxes, which are uh, online sales taxes, essentially, for the, the sales tax on your online goods. You have to approve, voters have to approve them in Missouri. And in the city of Ferguson, which some of you may have heard of uh, previously, they, pa- they had a use tax on the ballot, and it passed uh, handily as well. Is there anything uh, issue-wise that we know is going to be, I'm thinking maybe in Clay County, that we know is going to be on the November ballot? Two things stand out. Uh, Clay County, is, which we've discussed a few times on this, this show, is going to have the first ever rollback of the commercial property tax surcharge, also known as the surtax. Uh, every county has a different commercial surtax rate. Uh, Clay County has one of the highest in the state, and they're going to try and roll it back just slightly, but they're going to roll it back from $1.59 per hundred to $1.44 uh, to equal Jackson County's slightly lower rate. I think it's a very smart move. I think it's good policy, and we'll see if the voters of Clay County uh, approve it. An even smaller, but I think still extremely important vote, for the first time I think anybody knows of, there's a full recall of all the members of the Fire Protection Board in the Robertson Fire District, which is serves part of Hazelwood, Missouri, which is a very controversial fire department, fire district, excuse me, that's just been financially st- sticking it to the city of Hazelwood for about two decades now. And I'm, ex- I'm excited to see this recall being proposed, and I, th- I think it'll generate a lot of attention within the boundaries of Hazelwood and the Robertson Fire Protection District. Great. All right, to the interns. Abigail, you've been working, well, you both have been working on our uh, municipal checkbook project. How's that gone? What have you learned? And uh, do you have any news for us? The checkbook project, um, we've really been pleasantly surprised by the results of that, especially because 
Quinn and I have been able to look over with with Patrick, who's been helping us. We, we've been able to look over the results from the 2018 version of this project, where we asked most of the same cities to give us their expenditures. And this time we had over two times as many responses with documents as we did in 2018. And we had just a lot more cities who were able to give us those documents and their checkbooks for free, which was great. Um, almost 70% of the cities that we had respond to both requests, so this year and four years ago, they either responded faster, they requested less money or no money at all, or both. So that was great. Uh, I think that shows a more dedication to transparency than we had probably with the last request. Um, we had a couple no uh, notable negative experiences, which Quinn and I both wrote vlogs about. Uh, Quinn wrote about his experience with the city of Arbord. They charged us $20,000, or they were going to. Um, <laughs> I hope they were just going to. I hope we just didn't pay that. We did not pay them that. Uh, we sent um, an email to the... I was in the middle of writing the check, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Patrick stopped me. Uh, we sent an email to the Attorney General's office and uh, we got an immediate, what Quinn calls in his blog, a discount of $20,000, so they didn't end up charging us anything, and we got those documents. Uh, then I wrote about our experience with the city of Exeter, where the city attorney told us we could not have any records because, in his words, no one has ever heard of you. <laughs> um, then we reported them to the Attorney General's office also, and they backed down. We got those records for free, I think, two or three days ago. Um, All right, so I think this is a good place to just remind listeners what happens when someone doesn't comply with a sunshine request, not just from um, us, not just from think tanks, but just from, what happens when someone says, nope, not going to do it, not going to follow the law. What, what's our next step? Right. So the attorney general's office has a, a sunshine law division. There's a person who works in the AG's office who you send sunshine requests that you've gotten and something that's unresponsive or combative or is asking for way too much money, that those requests then get sent on to the AG's office and they can get in contact with the city. Eventually, if it goes far enough down that path, there's a lawsuit, but thankfully we have not had to get involved in any of that this year. We, we did have to get to the levels several years ago when we asked for some assessment data at, from a county, so it's a different project, but similar to what they're experiencing with the municipal checkbook, we asked a lot of counties for just some basic assessment information, and just about every county sent us the information very quickly uh, for either for free or for a very small charge. And one county, Grundy County, said it was seven grand, and they, were, they did not back down from that. It took several months, and it took the Attorney General's office um, formalizing a, a complaint against them and starting an investigation before Grundy County finally, finally backed down. It was a very odd behavior on their part. And Quinn, you've been part of this project too, correct? That's right. So, what's your experience been like? You know, I'm I, Abigail, Abigail kind of described it. Um, there's been some good, some bad. Uh, one of the positive experiences I had was a, a town of just 25 people uh, was able to send their their spending data over. Granted, it was only for their their landscaping bill they had every month, but still, you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to just comply with the Sunshine Law request and to uh, show that you're you know, show your constituents that you're committed to transparency. And currently, the state treasurer has a checkbook that they display on their website, but it's voluntary, right? At this point, there's there's no mandatory reporting for municipalities. Right. So the Show Me checkbook, which is which is the checkbook that has the state expenditures, and then I think there's some county expenditures, and it's voluntary at that level. 
Then there was recently passed another database that's going to have municipal expenditures. That one's also voluntary, unless I think 5% of people who voted in the most recent election send a letter to the people who run the municipal government and say, hey, we'd like you to provide your records to this database. For, for many of the small cities for whom providing this information might be a bit of a chore, I would propose that's probably a good reason that those small cities should reconsider existing in the first place. There's a lot of very small cities and towns and villages around the state where I think the people would be just as well served by being pr services provided by unincorporated county government for, for those cities. They don't, they don't have to disincorporate and then suddenly they're, they're you know, in post-apocalyptic Australia desperately seeking for some type of government. Uh, their counties are perfectly capable of providing these services in many cases. And uh, I would like to see that checkbook project be mandatory, that checkbook reporting to the state be mandatory. And if it's a, hard for a city, town, or village to comply, maybe you should consider unbecoming a city, town, or village. Sounds maybe like an idea for a David Stokes statewide tour 2023. Get your big tour bus. Should you exist? Come on out, everyone. Come out to the community center. Go to, go to 50 places and tell them they should not exist any further. Yeah, we're just going to raise the question. We're not. Uh, okay, so uh, people can go to showmeinstitute.org. You can see all of the data that you guys have collected, and you can check and see if your municipality is there and contemplate your existence, I guess, if uh, uh, you take the David Stokes angle. So, Quinn, sticking with transparency, a blog series that you've been writing the last couple months has to do with healthcare transparency. It's something that impacts everyone. Every time they want to have a procedure done, you want to figure out how much is this going to cost, and that is difficult. That is. That's that's kind of the point. The whole you know sticking point of price transparency is that well, why, well, why can't you shop for healthcare? You shop for your car, you shop for your home, you shop for groceries. Yet when you go to the hospital, you have your procedure done procedure done, and then you see the bill. And at that point, there's nothing you can really do about it. So the goal of press transparency is for consumers to know what they're going to pay uh, before they walk through the hospital door. So my project essentially was looking at, um, there's a federal rule in place that was um, passed during uh, Trump's presidency. It's enforced by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, that requires hospitals to have a shoppable, shoppable display for healthcare prices as well as like a machine readable, meaning like an Excel file or you know some sort of file that your that your computer can understand. Um, well, unfortunately in Missouri, it's not looking very good. Uh, only 29% of hospitals uh, that could I verify were actually complying with this rule. So if you're a consumer right now in Missouri trying to shop for healthcare, you're going to have a very difficult time doing so. And so what's the issue? Is it enforcement? It's just something that's really, really hard to enforce and that agency, that arm doesn't have the resources or has there been an explanation given for the reason why only 29% can comply with the federal law? Well, the simple answer is that hospitals don't want to. And uh, there has been certainly a lack of enforcement, um, you know, without speaking too much on federal issues. Um, there hasn't been many fines that have been given out by CMS so far. And at the state level, we don't have any rules in Missouri about transparency. So, so long as hospitals can feel like they can not comply uh, without being punished, they're you know just not going to comply. And so that's the the stick right now is just a fine system. 
that's there there's escalating fines there's escalating fines depending on the severity of the uh the rule breaking but and they range from anywhere from 300 to 5500 dollars a day which you know could definitely add up but they need to be enforced if they're going to have any effect and that's where it gets tricky because I'm, i don't think anybody is going to say that the healthcare is going to be made better by by massive fines of hospitals. Like that's right. not gonna that's not gonna lower the price for anybody if we start fining hospitals <laughs> up and yeah. down for not posting things online. Like what is the the stick? What is the carrot? What is the the just the public arguments that can be made to get hospitals and perhaps other healthcare providers to to how do how do we get this done without resorting to mandates and fines? Uh, and maybe that has to play. There's, eventually, there has to be some stick at the end of it, but it can't just be dramatically ramp up the fines and enforce them harder and think that that's suddenly going to make things better in healthcare. That isn't. Sure. And you said, how do we get this done? And it sounds like the we in that sentence right now is the state legislature. You mentioned that this is a federal law. It doesn't seem like that there is anything at the state level in Missouri anyway that has addressed this issue. No, there has been some uh, legislation, you know, but it doesn't, uh, about 10 years ago that had some sort of uh, goal for price transparency, but it doesn't really have uh, too much of an effect right now. Um, what we want at Show Me Institute, and we put in our uh, blueprint, is to have a, some sort of um, comprehensive state laws around price transparency. And like David said, we don't want necessarily all these fines being enforced, especially on these rural hospitals that could be struggling. What we really want is um, just for them to comply, and it can actually be a selling point for them that say, hey, you're gonna at this hospital. You're going to know what you're going to pay before you come in our doors. So we, that's what we want ultimately. Is this for for transparency to be a selling point to bolster uh, competitiveness within the healthcare industry? And to answer your question by by my use of the term "we," that was sort of a society-wide, <laughs> broad, royal use of the term "we," not just like Quinn and me. Right. Okay. <laughs> so you're going to need some help. All right. Well, that sounds like an opportunity for. Uh, people in the state legislature to maybe take a look at that. And yeah, as you might, uh, one of the examples you hear about often is I think it's the Oklahoma Surgery Center. Correct yeah, me if Surgery I got that Center, wrong. Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that seems like a model that uh, could be implemented and, and probably yeah. is implemented. From what I learned about through my conversations with uh, Elias here at Show Me, um, it's basically like a physician-owned healthcare facility that is able because it's physician-owned, they know their costs and they know how to control their costs most effectively. So they will tell you up front what the price is going to be. So I would encourage you to check that out. Great. Um, all right. Kansas City. There's uh, an issue with uh, CEO, KC Transit. Um, what's, uh, what's going on in KC? Yeah, so when I was on the podcast with David a couple weeks ago, we kind of talked about this uh, saga that's going on with Kansas City bus systems and how they're kind of struggling right now. And to make matters worse, there's uh, pressure on the boss of the Kansas City Area Transport Authority uh, because he does not want to fork over $20 million to fund some new LED streetlights, which is not in any way the job of the Transport Authority. So basically the city manager um, asked, you know, say, hey, we need this guy to resign. Otherwise, we're going to go with a different bus company to uh, serve Kansas City. So after weeks of waiting, we kind of have our answer to the you know, what's going to happen. And uh, the uh, KCATA is going to pay the uh, former head, uh, Robbie Mankinen, uh, $600,000 to step away, which is two years' salary. 
Uh, he's only required to have one year salary for his severance. So why two year salary is being given is really unclear, and I don't want to speculate, but you know. I'll speculate. Speculate <laughs> away. You know, it's such a just, it's such a ridiculous move. And as I said on Twitter, if anybody wants to be, if anybody still believes that local government is about and the city manager system, because Kansas City has a city manager system. If, if city managers like tr- take the politics out of local government and make it about public service, we'll read this story or this series of stories so that you, you may be disabused of that notion. Uh, here you have the head of the Kansas City Area Transportation Authority simply resisting efforts to take $20 million of their money, which they receive through their dedicated sales taxes and other ways, and just give it for new streetlights. On, a, on Kansas City roads. And because he resisted that effort, the city manager, the supposedly apolitical city manager of Kansas City, demanded that he be fired and insisted that all the board members of the KCATA, some from Missouri, some from Kansas, uh, fire this man or, or they were going to, Kansas City was going to cancel their contract entirely. So let's just r- know that this is brute politics, uh, not public service. And it's just awful. And in firing this, this gentleman, Robbie Mackinan, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Why are they paying him more than twice what they're required to by his contract? It's just to to get this thing swept under the rug as fastly as possible, as quickly as possible, as fast as possible to get this taken care of, so they can move on. Six hundred thousand to six hundred thousand dollars to the Kansas City government. What's that to them? They'll they'll just pay it, move on, and it's just. It's absolutely disreputable what they're, what they're doing here, both the initial firing and then the overly generous use of taxpayer money to fix the improper firing. It's, it's really disheartening. And so next steps is we'll just see who the new CEO is? The new CEO, and they'll continue to, to come in, and there'll be, there'll be complaints because they'll focus on their absurd streetcar as opposed to <laughs> actually trying to have a decent uh, – they've got a bus rapid transit system, which is – underfunded and not working as it should be and one of the reasons for that is they're spending so much money on their their silly streetcar it's a story we know well from st louis with spending so much money on light rail or the or the loop trolley as opposed to just focusing our transit money on a on an efficient well-functioning bus system to actually serve the people who use public transit at a fraction of the cost of light rail and and other and other uh, fun expensive toys all right, and finally, before we uh, we wrap up, David, you had an op-ed in the Post-Dispatch earlier this week in the Sunday edition, and um, I don't know you're already kind of on a roll here with this KC uh, Transit story. So I was I'm ho- always on a roll, right? You I, could, live my, I live my life on a roll. Uh, I was hoping you kind of fill in our listeners on uh, what you wrote about and the uh, almost societal level problem that you've identified. Well, thank you, Zach. Well, Post-Dispatch, we give a shout out to the. The editorial managers of the Post-Dispatch who li- liked our op-ed when we submitted it last week and ran it in Sunday's edition. You can see it at stltoday.com. We also cross-posted it uh, the other day at uh, showmeinstitute.org. It's about just not elected officials disagreeing or having arguments over the law, political differences. It's about examples in both parties of elected officials just blatantly ignoring the law. Just saying the law says X, but you know what? We're going to insist it says Y. And examples such as we talked about the county charter reform uh, passed yesterday, passed on Tuesday, to require that board and commission appointments be approved by the county council. Well, it says that. 
in the law. But uh, County Executive Page uh, appointed somebody to a board. That appointment was rejected, and he insisted that he could appoint this person to the board anyway, despite the fact that that's clearly not what the law says. It applies to earnings tax collections in in St. Louis City now being enforced on people working remotely from outside of the city, saying they still have to pay the earnings tax. That's not what the law says. Everybody knows that's not what the law says. But the collector of revenue in the city is saying, I don't care. Sue me. You know, go. You don't like it? Sue us. It's absolutely ridiculous. Certainly cites several examples of a former President Trump who, believe it or not, would occasionally be known to, to a not pay so much attention to the letter of the law and accomplishing some of the things he wanted to do. Uh, I gave two examples. Uh, I think the best one is imposing trade tariffs on, on steel when he had no legal authority to do so. So it's just another ridiculous example of how this continues on and on. And until we can agree, we can have all of our debates about the role of government in our lives and how big government should be and what the level of taxes should be and on and on and on. But while we, it is vital that while we have these debates that we all agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that the law says what it says, and if you don't like it, fight to change the law or comp or engage in the compromise to do whatever it takes. But you can't say 2 plus 2 is 5, and that's what the piece is talking about. All right, and uh, like you said, we cross-posted it at chumminstitute.org, but it's also up at stltoday.com. Everyone should go read it. Quinn, Abigail, what, uh, what do you have left on your plate for your short time here left at the Institute? Well, we'll be watching the end of uh, uh, requests for the school curriculum, Sunshine Requests, we sent out recently. We've seen a couple of interesting responses to that. Districts sort of doing interesting remixes of what we actually asked for um, and responding to that instead of our actual request. So I'll probably be writing about that in the next couple of days. Yeah, and then um, in addition to that, um, we'll, be, we'll both be giving uh, lunch lectures to the uh, team at Showman Institute. So um, I'll be giving mine on uh, public transportation in St. Louis, and uh, Abigail is going to do hers on uh, the Sunshine Project. But those those lunch lectures are not available to the general public. Oh, unfortunately. So I don't, Thankfully. I don't, mean yeah. to get, I don't mean to get all of our listeners e- excited. Right. Uh, and then, David, as far as you know, you're sticking around for a while. What are you working on uh, over the next I week or two? I don't think I'm leaving the job <laughs> in, the next, in the next week or two, unless somebody has some information for me that I'm unaware of as yet. Um one thing I'm going to be diving a lot more into over the next few weeks is uh, working with our colleague Elias Sapelis and talking about talking about long term some long term property tax changes and proposals in Missouri, uh, some of which might relate to the Hancock Amendment, but most importantly in the short term, it looks like used car values, as we all know, have increased dramatically around the country over the past two years, and that's going to lead to uh, much higher personal property taxes imposed when people get their car. Missouri is one of the only states that imposes a personal property tax on cars, as I think many people know. So you're going to get your bills at the end of the year and your used car, which is now one year older, but the tax is going to be higher because its value has increased. And personal property taxes are one of the few property taxes not not covered by the Hancock Amendment's tax rollback rules. So this is going to be a windfall for local governments around the state, and we really want to start pressuring, pressing, debating, encouraging, whatever the term may be, cities, counties, school districts, fire districts, etc., over this next month or two to voluntarily roll back their personal property tax rates, even just somewhat, to offset these uh, 
bonanzas that are going to be coming forward. So that's a big issue, and I'll be talking about it a lot over the next few months. All right. As always, thank you for listening. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. David, Quinn, Abigail, thank you very much. Thank you.